How do you define a good leader? Douglas MacArthur, an American military leader who served as General of the Army for the United States and played a prominent role in the Pacific Theater during the Second World War, says, a true leader has the confidence to stand alone, the courage to make tough decisions, and the compassion to listen to the needs of others. He does not set out to be a leader, but becomes one by the quality of his actions and the integrity of his intent. True, but leaders also come in all shapes and sizes. Some are famous, some notorious, some democratic, and some dictatorial. Some love the spotlight, and some love to stay behind their team. Some have opportunities thrust upon them, and some seize a critical moment to showcase their ability. In a week where leaders like Indian cricket captain Virat Kohli decided to step down from white ball captaincy, and Justin Trudeau, Canadian Prime Minister, won his re-election, we have decided to call out a few stories about various leaders focusing on their greatness, authority, and even the odd eccentricity. Welcome to our weekly podcast. I'm Rakhin Basu. And with me is Joy Bhattacharya, a man who has led a few teams in his uh, life so far and done quite well, I might say. And this is Fact of the Matter. Joy, I had a great time researching on stories about leadership. But firstly, how are you? And uh, how did you like doing your own research about leadership and leadership stories? Hey, thanks, Sotin. I really enjoyed myself and uh, it's been fun. I've spent many, many productive years as a part of the Kolkata Knight Riders, which is a team in the IPL, which plays in the Indian Premier League, Cricket League. And uh, I saw, I really had a good time with them and uh, saw some leaders up close, uh, some great lessons. And there are lots of leaders who are not always captains. But uh, I want to start this one up about with a story about two leaders who on the face of it have no similarity with each other, but had right. very, very similar career paths. One is Robert A. Lee. Obviously, we know of him as a Confederate general. And the other is Lord Krishna, of course, who we have read about in mythology. Indian mythology is really wow. good stories about it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's something that connects the two of them. Okay, And the thing that connects the two of them really, really deeply is that in history or in history and mythology, if you have that, they are two famous leaders who were offered leadership by both sides. So let me first start with Krishna. So Krishna, Lord Krishna, we remember just before the Battle of Mahabharat, yeah. both Duryodhan and Arjun, obviously the Kauravs and the Pandavas, both wanted Krishna on their side. And Krishna was, you know, wanted to play scrupulously fair. So he said, okay, here's the deal. On one side, we'll have the Narayani Sena, which is the entire Yadav army. Mm -hmm. On the other side, there's just me as a strategist and I'm not take arms. Who do you want? And of course, there's this famous story that, you know, they were asked to, Krishna was lying down, they were asked to position themselves as to where they would sit when Krishna woke up. And of course, Arjun chose the bottom of the bed, you know, the end of the bed, because Duryodhan wanted to sit beside the head. But if you get up, the first thing you look is downwards and Arjun had first choice. And he goes straight with Krishna. So that's the story. And as it turned out, the entire Sena, the Narayani Sena fought for the Kauras, but Krishna, of course, was a master strategist and the Pandavas finally won. So that was Krishna. But the other thing that most people don't know was that Robert E. Lee was a very, very famous US general even before he joined the Confederates. Right. And just when civil war broke out, and he's from the state of Virginia, and Virginia seceded, Right. After the leadership of the Union troops. And he said, when Francis Blair asked him that, you know, would you take charge of the Union troops? And he said, Mr. Blair, I look upon secession as anarchy. 
If I owned the four millions of slaves in the South, I would sacrifice them all to the Union. But how can I draw my sword upon Virginia, my native state? Right. So obviously, he resigns his commission. He goes back to the South. He becomes a Confederate general. And the tragedy of it is that a man who actually did not believe in slavery actually was a man, one man who stood between the Union troops winning the war and not. If Robert E. Lee had not been there, this war would have been over in a couple of years. And uh, it's unfortunate, just in the defense of his union, and he was one of the few men in history offered leadership and command by both sets of uh, armies. That's fantastic. I mean, what I find really interesting is in both these cases, um, it was, in Krishna's case, it was about striking a balance. He did not wish to be seen as taking a side. Whereas in General Lee's case, it was more about loyalty and one's own moral compass, right? If if I believe in something and if I know that by pursuing that belief, it might lead to sure defeat or certain defeat, it doesn't mean you step away from that, which, you know, to me is a, is a sign of a great leader. Because, you know, if you want to follow a leader, you want a guy like that. I mean, that's the sort of guy you take a bullet for, right? From what we hear. But that's that's fantastic. I mean, you know, when I started doing my research, Joy, I also went back in history and I found out a story about a man whom we've all heard of, a man called Hannibal Barca, also known as Hannibal the Conqueror, a man who came from Carthage. Carthage is, I think, somewhere in modern-day Tunisia or Algeria, around that, just across... Yeah, North Africa. North Africa. Now, Hannibal is regarded as one of the greatest military commanders, you know, and stands tall among men like Alexander, Napoleon, Genghis Khan, Sun Tzu. He was also called the Elephant Commander because of his heroic effort at getting elephants across the Alps and then you know, when he went and attacked Rome. But there are a lot of stories around uh, Hannibal which come come good when you talk about leadership and leadership qualities. A little bit about him, he had a very difficult childhood as his father was always engaged in what was called the mercenary wars. His name is of Latin origin, but you know, there are sources which say he could have had North African blood as well. Because his dad was fighting all the time, he was at, from a very early age imbued with the thought of improving Carthage's fate as it kept suffering losses, you know, in the first Punic War and the Punic Wars were the battles between Rome and Carthage. And, you know, he started supporting his father in building a very strong army to fight the Romans. Now, at the age of nine, he was introduced to this rivalry. Very soon, he was made commander-in-chief of his troops and given extensive training. And a lot of people think he was just a great warrior, but he was also a brilliant strategist. Now, he was a guy who realized the value of mercenaries. Now, before that, mercenaries, basically fighters who fight for money, were considered to be dodgy at best. I mean, you couldn't really trust them because if they're taking money from you, if, some, if the opponent gives more money, then they might go to the other side, etc., etc. But he used mercenaries and started giving out fantastic results when he started taking on the Romans. In the Battle of Cannae, he used his supreme skills of warfare and leadership and basically killed about 60,000 Romans, which even today is regarded as one of the bloodiest wars in history when it comes to the number of lives lost. And he was a master strategist. By the way, after the Battle of Cannae, Joy, more than one-fourth of Roman senators were killed in this battle, which led to a political upheaval in ancient Rome. Yeah, Kenny is always referred to as one of the lowest points in Roman history. Absolutely. And the funny bit is, you know, after his time, he in fact even went on after he was, he finally lost in the Battle of Zama, if I'm not mistaken. 
and then he was exiled because the Romans were mortally afraid that if he stayed, he would soon want to, you know, extract revenge and get into another battle. So they sent him into exile. And he wrote treatises and books on military tactics. And then after a few years, Rome started adopting elements of his military tactics for their personal strategy. So he became, and almost like Sun Tzu and the art of war, he became a worldwide and well-renowned master in war. And today there are courses, Joy, where Hannibal's mastery of, you know, warfare and leadership are taught about, you know, how fantastic or how applicable these things are even in this life. Like one story I heard and which I have now seen copied in many movies is uh, when he was actually up against a very big enemy joy. He, in the night, he put torches, lit torches. He attached them to the horns of cattle and sheep and uh, he charged them down a mountain road. Now, when in the distance the uh, enemy camp saw all they saw were a series of torches coming down with massive promotion and they thought a full-scale attack was happening. There was pandemonium and he managed to win the battle. Now, this was the sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have a very famous Hannibal story which is absolutely crazy. Yeah. So, this is a naval battle. They actually had a naval battle and he was fighting for Bithynia. This is the time in his exile. He was fighting for Bithynia against their enemies right. who were Pergamon. And right. Pergamon had a bigger fleet. So, he said, you know, how can I beat them? So, you know what he did? He actually went to land, right. collected all the venomous snakes he could find, okay? Right. Right. And he put them into clay vessels, okay? And as soon as they came close to the enemy vessels, they would throw over these clay pots full of snakes. So, they would land on the galleys and all these snakes would come out and there was absolute total panic. You know, thousands and hundreds of snakes basically inside your ship. And those Pergamon sailors went absolutely mad. And they won the battle. I mean, can you think of somebody figuring that out? He was he was an absolute genius, Hannibal was. And they say, I mean, in, in some of these articles I've been reading, uh, it has been mentioned that two things which stand out and are applicable even today. One is brainwash your own self to believe in the vision you set out for yourself. And apparently he did this and his father helped him that Rome is my enemy. I have to devote my life to being Rome. So this is what you have to think. And I have stories later after this where I will give you another example of this, which I thought was very exciting. And the second is do what you expect your team to do or what your people to do. Don't stand away and lead a life of luxury and expect people to fight wars in, you know, mud and rain and with no food in their stomach. So he used to sleep with his soldiers out in the open or in tents. He did not have an iota of luxury or glamour whenever he was out with his people. And that was leading by example. The soldiers were saying, this is a guy exactly like us and he is leading us. He's giving us the way to approach a battle or, you know, a war. And you know what? He's exactly like us. He eats the same food. He talks with us, sits and drinks with us, you know, shares in our victories, is there with us commiserating if there are any disasters and so on and so forth. And unbelievable. I mean, this is exactly what business leaders of today, some of these articles say, should actually, you know, take note of and try and follow that. I fully agree. I fully agree. And I want to talk about, you know, coming from the world of generals to the world of sport. I want to talk about one man who I always hugely respected as a captain because, you know, I saw him captain when I was just growing up, seven, eight years old. Mansoor Ali Khan Pataudi, the Nawab of Pataudi Jr. was one of those people who just caught your imagination. But the most fascinating story about his as captain is the fact that how he got his captaincy. We all remember the Ken Kensington Oval in Bridgetown, March 1962. Oh. Nari Kuntra 
instructor's batting and Charlie Griffith hits him in the head and things get really serious. That was, you know, it was life and death. And of course, many people gave blood, including Frank Bordle. Nadi Contractor was saved. But the next test match, the man who becomes captain is Mansoor Ali Khan Patel. Now, after that, since then, two more people have been, you know, he was 21 years old when he became captain. Since then, two more people have become captain who were younger than him. That's Taibu and uh, I think it's Rashid Khan have also become captain at an age younger than him. But there's one record Pataudi holds, which none of these people can even aspire to. Each and every one of the other 10 members of his 11, when he captained his first test match, all the other 10 members were older than him. <laughs> so, herein lies another story. So, this is something that's a brilliant fact. So, many, many years back, I asked this in a cricket quiz where Suril Gavaskar was captaining one team and Venkat Raghavan was captaining the other team. And Venkat Raghavan actually answered and said that, I think that's not the correct answer. I think the correct answer is Richie Benno when he captained, you know, all the 10 members of his 11 were younger than him when Richie Benno first captained. The truth was, and after that, Venkat Raghavan one by one started telling me dates of birth. Can you imagine the knowledge that man had? So one after the other, he said, oh, so-and-so born and so-and-so date. Keith Miller born and so-and-so date. Finally, he said, oh no, Neil Harvey was actually born after Richie Benno, so probably you're right after all. <laughs> and I remember that story, the fact that, I mean, Venkat Raghavan's memory just utterly, totally blew me away. But Pataudi was a test captain, who was a captain with all 10 members of his side older than him. And, I mean, not to forget his one eye, I'm sure you would have, I mean, you, you could imagine how difficult it is to play first-class cricket, better or test cricket, manage that and have the tactical nows to actually capture your country. I mean, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, when I hear these stories and I've heard uh, many stories of Tiger Patrani later during his uh, editorial days for the magazine Sports World, if you remember, and every single journalist, I think even today, who worked in Sports World as, you know, young computers in, in the 80s and all, even today, swear by Tiger Patrani who was, I think, the editor. Editor of Sports World, I would imagine, right? Yeah, he was the editor of Sports World. Yeah, he was the editor. But talking of Pataudi and Tiger, interestingly, I can uh, take you to another big cricket story. And this is a story about uh, one of my uh, favourites and one of the most fascinating characters uh, I, have, I have ever met in the world of cricket. A British captain called Douglas Jardine, the man behind the infamous body lines. Now, Douglas Jardine had massive Indian connection. I mean, he was born in India. And as a cricketer, he played about 22 test matches for England, captaining the side in 15 of those. And it was between basically 31 and 34 that he was a captain. But he is known, best known for captaining the English team during the 32-33 Ashes Tour of Australia, where he employed infamous bodyline tactics, which, you know, you remember when bowlers deliberately pitched the ball short on the line of the leg stump, which made it rise towards the bodies of the batsmen in a manner that nobody had actually faced before, nobody had tried it before. And uh, therefore, it was viewed as intimidatory, physically dangerous, and, you know, he became infamous. So, the controversy became so big, as we all know, that it almost threatened uh, British-Australian relations at that time. And this is between the two wars when things were already very fraught amongst all the major nations in the world. And Douglas Jardine, much more than a cricketer, I think, would be known more for his leadership skills, and I'll explain why. He did not like the Australian players and the crowds. You know, he's, he's made it very clear in his, in his later years as well. But those who played under his leadership told him he was an excellent and dedicated captain, very poor in managing people. 
also, you know, he a slightly arrogant manner, and especially after the borderline tour, which well could be self-defensive, but that also didn't help. So not only was he unpopular in Australia where he went to play, because of the controversy, his his career was cut short. He was, by the way, a qualified solicitor, though he didn't work much in law, but he moved on to banking and later on journalism. He joined the Territorial Army in the Second World War and spent most of it incident posted in India during the war. And after the war, he worked as a you know company secretary and you know also did part-time journalism. The story I want to tell you is we all know about Bodyline and we all know the entire story about him instructing Lawood and Vos and all the other bowlers to take that line and then you know. The whole idea of Bodyline, as we know, started long before, a few years before when he was given the captaincy and he started planning on how to counter a man, a phenomenon called John Brack. And with his team, and this is where preparation comes, he found out that there was a particular match in England where because of unseasonal rain, there was a very lively pitch where John Bradman had for a period of 30 to 40 minutes. And you remember in those days, Joy, pitches went covered, right? He didn't have all these things. John Bradman had some problems facing short pitch bowling or deliveries which rose above a certain height on the backside. That set him thinking. And that proved to be the kernel on which he developed the entire philosophy of borderline bowling. And what people don't know, Joy, which I found really fascinating, is the post-bodyline situation. After he came back from the bodyline tour, you know, with all the negativity and everything, you know, the tour was described as the most controversial tour in cricketing history, etc. There was a tour of West Indies in England where he was playing. And the West Indies team, one down in the series and frustrated by the lack of pace, apparently, employed Bodyline on the UK team. And Jardine said to Les Amis, was playing against him against this, he said, you get yourself down this end, Les, I'll take care of this bloody nonsense. And apparently, faced a barrage of bodyline bouncers on tiptoe, stopped them with a dead bat and didn't utter a single word. He didn't flinch. So he has actually played it. And some people say he probably played bodyline better than any other man in the world, which means he stood in front of his tactic and actually proved how it, how well it could be done. And this I found fantastic. And, you know, then in, he was also later appointed to an MCC tour of India in the 1933 season where you know, India was always very, very happy hunting ground for him because he was born there. He would take holidays over there. He was, he was very happy with the Indian crowd. In fact, he said they know their cricket, etc., etc. But even in India, he apparently faced uh, bodyline bowling. He tried doing it, but then Mohammad Nisar and Amar Singh retaliated with bodyline bowling of their own. So Bodyline didn't end with that famous iconic Ashes tour. This I thought was incredible. I mean... Uh, but what more can you expect? Look, he's competent, arrogant, snooty. Right. Dude, the guy was born on Malabar Hill. He's a South Bombay boy. I mean, what more do you expect out of him? <laughs> he's a typical South Bombay product. If he if he's not arrogant and doesn't believe the thing, the universe centers around him, he's not a South Bombay kid. And guess what? After the, the infamous Ashes tour ended, when, you know, England won, etc. But, you know, he didn't score too many runs, by the way. I think the promise he got to him. Lavon didn't play the final test because he had, a, I think, a foot injury. You know what he did? They were supposed to go to New Zealand or something like that, uh, for one-off test uh, or something. When all that ended, when they were supposed to take the boat back, Jardine just took off on another boat and said, I'm going for a holiday to India. I've had enough. He came to India. 
and you know in those days these things were really not done i mean the mcc didn't take it to finally but you know what he did his job he was given a task joy as a leader to herd a group of cricketers to deliver a result which is beat australia in australia with a team which included don bradman he did it so today almost you know 100 years later 90 years later i mean i still think there are some people who do the job the hard way without thinking of any negative ramification or what perceptions might be about them or their character and they don't care a damn so you know you might not like it you might not be uh, excited by such leaders but hey it's also another way of leadership another style of leadership uh, yeah i i think i think it's one of those things which you go very close to that edge where you say that you know as long as you don't know what's happening out there uh, you know bismarck famously said that as long as people don't know how sausages and taxes are made they they sleep better at night so perhaps Correct. it was more difficult for people to accept uh, jardin because he didn't be open and not you know behind their back so yeah i i i find jardin complex and fascinating i don't completely agree with him but there's no doubt that he was a man of many many talents as well and to top it off um, in the television series bodyline i remember while growing up i saw hugo weaving play the role of douglas jardin and i thought he did a fantastic job that was a time when hugo weaving was not the hugo weaving of matrix and lord of the rings it is way way before but you could sense that i think he really brought out the various nuances of that jardin's complex character as you just said and and did a fantastic job in that uh, tv series but anyway that's main course that's leadership from lord sri krishna to douglas jardin i think we've covered a long way but we we could go on and on about this we now move on to our next section which is believe it or not we stick with the idea of leaders but joy in weird news and crazy stuff about leaders I have some funny ones today. I have broadly three stories and my first story I'll talk about three leaders and their eccentricities in a manner of speaking. And my first story is about German chancellor now ex chancellor Angela Merkel. Now, I don't know whether you know about this. She was the most powerful woman in Europe a few months back, but that did not stop her from having a very very weird habit of stockpiling food and cleaning products. Now, how did this happen? Apparently she spent her first 35 years in communist East Germany where people would have to queue for food and because of that she's admitted that the fear of running short of consumer goods continued to haunt her 20 years after unification that she actually could afford not to and in a magazine interview she said that she tried a lot but she could not break her hoarding habit she said i still buy something as soon as i see it even when i don't really it's a deep seated habit stemming from the fact that in an economy the things were scarce you just used to get what you could when you could you know she had an annual salary of 303000 euros apparently and her diet was still apparently controlled with or had a eastern european flavor you know uh, soup and vegetable stews and kebabs etc but you know she said this is something which you know i can't uh, stop doing and apparently she said took until the 15th or 16th year after german unification before i could use the word supermarket because i would use the east german term kaufhalle which literally meant buying all when she was a 35 year old physicist when the, when the Berlin, Berlin wall fell and the second story i have is uh, again very interesting a man called Jose Alberto Mujica also known as Pepe Mujica politician from Uruguay who served as the 40th president of Uruguay from 2010 to 2015 he used to be a former guerrilla with a group called the Tupamaros and was imprisoned for 12 years during the military dictatorship in the 70s and 
80s. Then he came into politics, you know, uh, was a member of a coalition of left-wing parties, minister, and then finally won the 20, 2009 presidential election and took office as president. Now, the story I'm going to tell you is that he's often been described as the world's humblest head of state. Why? Because of his austere lifestyle and his donation of around 90% of his 12,000 US monthly salary to charities benefiting poor people and small entrepreneurs. In 2005, you know, he married his partner, Lucia Topolansky, and, you know, they have no children, but still today, they live in a farm owned by Lucia on the outskirts of Montevideo, where they cultivate chrysanthemums for sale. He declined to stay in the presidential palace or use its staff and actually stayed in this farm and used a 1987 Volkswagen Beetle as a means of transportation. Now, in 2010, apparently the car was worth $1,800 and represented the entire the personal wealth declaration value filed by him. And he refused to accept any other car joy or anything else. This is... I thought was incredible. Yeah, in fact, uh, we have our own variety of that. There's a chief minister who was still recently the chief minister of Tripura. I mean, he was the chief minister of Tripura till 2018. And he, again, absolutely no money at all. Everything belongs to the state. He literally, he had, he's to get the entire salary that he got. He donated to his the Communist Party and you'd get 10,000 per month as a monthly allowance. That's the way he used to survive. So lots of guys are like that. I want to talk about an American president who had a very unusual habit. So, you know, all of us know Lyndon Johnson is a man who took over from John F. Kennedy, the only president to be sworn in in an aircraft because, you know, they were flying in from Dallas. But the interesting thing about him was he actually used... And he was a man who didn't really bother about, you know, what people thought of him. Right. He used the toilet as a form of intimidation. So, you know, especially these, yeah, because, you know, he comes from Texas and Texas yeah. is a state where they're raw and, you know, they don't care very much. And all these very carefully manicured East Coast types, he would call them for meetings when he's sitting on the pot and they wouldn't know what to do. And he would do meetings like that because he knew that these people really didn't think clearly. They're trying to look away and talk to him. Right. And he's peacefully, you know, doing his stuff, whatever he's doing. He's signing documents. He's sitting on the pot and doing all that. <laughs> and he used to drive people mad. And he used it actually as a tactic. And then there's this very famous dialogue that he had. You know, every every American president had to deal with the head of the FBI, who was J. Edgar Hoover, who was a horrible man and a very dangerous man. So they asked him that, what do we do? President Johnson, you're finally there. You're in command. What do we do about J. Edgar Hoover? And he thought about it in a lot. And he said, well, I'd rather have him in the tent pissing out than outside the tent pissing in. And so they decided that, you know, we'll control Hoover by keeping him inside the system rather than outside the system. But I have rarely come across somebody who's a president of the United States of America, of the Western world, the leader of the Western world, as it were, who enjoyed intimidating people by meeting them while sitting on his toilet. Talking of LBJ, I, I seem to remember that the famous Beatles number, Fool on the Hill, was apparently a sort of a reference to him sitting on top of Capitol. I mean, that's... that's, that's quite, yeah, quite possible uh, because that was during the Vietnam War. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Fool on the Very Hill possible. apparently was a tongue-in-cheek reference to the man who's sitting day after day alone on a hill. You know, the man with the foolish grin is keeping yeah. still. So, yeah, that's that's what some, somewhere I read that there was, it was a tongue-in-cheek reference to him. And of course, I mean, uh, he was, unfortunately, uh, the US president had probably the, one of the worst moments in... U.S. history, right, in terms of the Vietnam War and the and the steady 
the rising of you know murmurs of anti-war protests building up to a massive groundswell in the US and he had to bear the brunt of it. But that's I think a lot for today on Weird News, which is believe it or not, our section. We will now take a break. But before we go in, we would like to remind our listeners that you can write to us with suggestions, feedback, and answers to our quiz questions to this email address, factofthematterindia at gmail.com. You can also catch all our episodes on Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other platform you prefer. Please click on the follow button, which will ensure that you automatically get informed whenever a new episode drops. You can also check our website, anchor.fm backslash factofthematter. And leave your feedback. Do give us ratings. We would love to know whether you like it or not. And don't go too far because we will be back very, very soon. Welcome back to our discussion on leadership, leaders, stories, anecdotes. And we move into our next section, which is cute words and phrases, where we will pick out something from the world of, from the wide world of anything and everything and try and trace the root of such words or phrases. Joy, what do you have for us today? I want to start off with a color that's totally associated with royalty and leadership, which is purple. Right. So we talk about purple patch, born in the purple, that means born to royalty, royal purple. So purple has always been associated with royalty and power and wealth. And I've often wondered why it's so. And if you do a little bit of reading, it turns out that purple used to be so, so revered and royal because it was extremely expensive. So the only places in the world where purple was originally made was the Phoenician trading city of Tyre, which is in now modern Lebanon. And there's a particular mollusk which is only found there. 9,000 mollusks were needed to make one gram of what they call Tyrian blue, which is what we know as purple. So you have to kill 9,000. And even now, when you excavate the places being excavated, you find thousands and thousands of these crushed shells out there because that's the only place purple used to be made. And therefore, all these rulers used to say only leaders can wear purple. And anyway, nobody else could wear it because they couldn't afford it. In fact, they say that Caligula had the king of Mauritania murdered just because he had a purple cloak. And that purple cloak, nobody else could, even Caligula could not afford it. He said, I'd rather kill this ruler and take the purple. That's how purple has become such a huge, huge thing for royalty. I always knew this, uh, Joy, and now you've just proved it correct. Uh, a lot of people have often told me that whenever I'm angry, I turn purple in rage, which means <laughs> royal blood within me. I, I henceforth request you to please refer to me as your excellency or your honor. Uh, so <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I just add to that, yeah, I, your honor, Sir Ratin, I just want to tell you one more thing. What I love about how history changes is, so purple is this color which is all about royalty right up to the 20th century. Right. But guess who adopts it when the 20th century starts? It's adopted by the women's suffrage movement. The women's movements for vote suffrage, they adopt purple as their color. And after that, the next people to adopt purple as the color is the psychedelic drug culture, purple haze, purple rain, everything is purple. So the Timothy Leary turn on, tune in, drop out. Yeah. So here's this color that was royalty for, you know, maybe 25 centuries, 30 centuries. And in the 20th century becomes something about women's votes, becomes something about counterculture. And that's why I love history, how it keeps changing. And the whole meaning of purple has changed totally now. Fantastic. That's, that's brilliant. And my word today is also linked to leadership. It's the word admiral, which is uh, a person of very high rank in a navy, typically. 
Now, it's a curiosity of history that, you know, the word admiral probably has its source from Arabic, you know, and funnily enough, language of a people who live in the desert, who acquired their seafaring skills after the great expansion of Islam in the 7th century. Now, the Arabic word Amir, which is the word for a Muslim chieftain, probably has been loaned through medieval Latin, give various spellings like Amiratus, Admirandus, or Admiralis. And, you know, these words often display a variety of suffixes, though, you know, admirari is not a word because it's Latin for to admire, though the D has been added. The ending A-L-L-U-S is probably from the Arabic article Al. So, you know, like Amir al-Ali, for example, which means Supreme Commander. So Absolutely. Yeah. So the application of Admiralis to a commander of a fleet was first seen apparently in 12th century Sicily, adopted obviously by the Genoese, who were very big in naval travel, and then, you know, spread to countries throughout. So Admiral, you might think it's an English <laughs> word, but came from Arabia. Yeah. Yeah. People who lived in the desert for starters. I find that absolutely amazing. The fact that Admiral it sounds so English, you know, the Lord Admiral will come and meet you now. And it's actually an Arabic word is something that totally blows my mind. Which also brings me, there's a very similar connection. There's this word called Lashkar. And Lashkars were Indian sailors, you know, in the 19th, 18th, 19th, the 20th century. Correct. And Lashkar again comes from, Lashkar literally means Laskars come, Lashkar comes from army. They were actually right. armies in Arabia again. Again, Arabic origins, army becomes a navy again out here. I, I don't know how it happens, but language has this beautiful way of traveling around the world without us even knowing about it. And one of the big Indian admirals, or one of the first Indian admirals in history, Joy, I came across was a man called Kanoji Angre. Angre, yeah. Who was uh, the naval general, uh, Admiral and a naval general for Shivan, which uh, apparently he, he was a fantastic commander and took charge of all of Shivaji's ships in the Arabian Sea. So, and I think even today there is a Indian Navy training ship called Kanoji Amre, if I'm not mistaken, or something in Mumbai, which, which one can check and find out. But yeah, Admiral, fascinating, nice, interesting way of trying to find out some of these routes. And uh, we will now look admirably as Joy. You will ask me a question in our next segment called Bare Naked Lies. This is pure, pure competition. No leaders, no followers. One question each, answer to which is going to be true or false. Last week, Joy, you had a stupendous 2 nil victory. Let me see this week, but today I will start off, Joy, with my question. And you have to tell me whether it's right or wrong. Today's question for you, in bare naked lies, to get your first point and draw first blood is this. American President John Adams, known for being a man of few words, liked to walk around the White House with his pet raccoon on a leash and started his day by having petroleum jelly rubbed on his head while he ate breakfast. He was also known to be lover of very strange looking hats. Is this true or false? I'm going to say true. I'm going to say true simply because... Uh, if you were to choose, I mean, you you might have changed presidents on me. That's the only thing. That's the only way it could be false. But I think it's going to be true. I'll go for true. Well, Joy, you were right. I did change presidents. This is Calvin Coolidge who was known. <laughs> John Adams, I think, and, you know, John Adams and his son, John Quincy Adams, still today, I think, remain the only father and son combination to be U.S. presidents. But John Adams, I think, was a very serious man and didn't do any of such stuff. I think avoided pet raccoons totally, never rubbed petroleum jelly on his head. I don't even know whether he had enough head by the time. <laughs> enough head on his head. 
I knew I knew Calvin you got one point but I knew Calvin Coolidge was very you know didn't speak very much but yeah. he was eccentric he didn't speak very much but I didn't know that he had a pet raccoon so I thought it might be earlier well done 1-0 to you and my chance yes here goes okay the largest silver artifacts in the world were made for Maharaja Savai Madho Singh the king of Jaipur and they were used to carry Ganga jal on his trips to England so the largest silver artifacts in the world and they were five and a half feet tall okay they could carry 4000 liters of water they were used by maharaja savai madho singh to carry ganga jal on his trips to england true or false i would say the only ruler of jaipur worth remembering is savai man singh and you said savai madho singh maybe you're playing a trick again on the name like i did in my questions so i will say false It's true. <laughs> For once, I got you. I played it absolutely straight. So it's one all. Yeah, I thought yours was true. It was false. You thought mine was false. It was true. We are one all today. So we leave with our honors intact today. Bare naked lies ends in an honorable one all draw. Thank God, Joy. In this series, we don't have extra time and tiebreaker. Otherwise, God knows what would have happened. <laughs> it would be a, it would end in a bloodbath. But that's that's competition for Joy and me. We now want to go to the last section of this uh, episode where we traditionally ask a quiz question for all our listeners. But before we ask this week's question, Joy. Will you tell us what you had asked last week, and then I shall give you the list of the winners. Last week we had asked, we talked about you know underdogs, and the question was that who was the first unseeded player in the Open era to win a Grand Slam title, and it was Mark Edmondson, the 1976 Australian Open. He was ranked 212th in the world at the time, and when he won the Australian Open, so Mark Edmondson is the answer we're looking for. Any correct answers? Yes, and I shall give you the honor list of those who have given me correct answers. Shantanu Sharma, Lalit Mundra, Abhishek Basu Mal, Partha Dey, Abhijit Swain, Saurav Shukla. Very good, very good answers. Ramesh Morana, name coming back. Rohit Jadhav. Neeraj Dubey. That's the list for this week. Congratulations on getting the answers correct. Enjoy. What's your question for this week? My question for this week is a simple one. It can be looked up, but it's an absolutely fascinating fact. After the First World War, who was offered the throne of the Kingdom of Albania and refused because? The Albanians were looking for a man with an income of ten thousand pounds a year, which he didn't have, and he decided that he didn't want to borrow the money from his friends. After the First World War, who was offered the throne of Albania and refused because the Albanians were looking for a man with an income of ten thousand pounds a year, and he didn't have it, and he didn't want to borrow it from his friends? That's my question. Wow, the only only Albanian connection I like to remember is of Mother Teresa, of course, and now there's another one in the world of music. The singer Dua Lipa, who is famous for all yep. her, you know, uh, pop hits, global pop hits, and uh, she is of Albanian descent, probably a UK citizen right now. But hey, get your Albanian hats in order and um, try and give this answer as soon as possible. But that brings us to the end of this episode. Hope you liked it. We would again like to remind all of you: please write to us at factinthematterindia@gmail.com. You can catch this and every other episode on Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Report Stitcher, and any other platform where you listen to your podcast.
podcast. Click on the follow button, check our website, give us your feedback. Stay safe, stay well and see you next week.